0: This morning I'll be reading from Hebrews chapter 2 beginning in verse 10, reading through verse 18 this morning. Hebrews chapter 2 beginning in verse 10, the word of God reads, For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Here ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, infallible, and inerrant word. Please join me for a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that through it, Christ speaks. We pray, oh God, that your spirit would teach us this morning and that your word would be our delight. Incline our ears and give us understanding so that our lives would reflect your glory. And we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated, beloved. Don't raise your hand if you disagree this morning, but I'm going to venture to say and suggest that nobody enjoys suffering. As a matter of fact, many people will do almost anything to avoid suffering. If something brings us pain or discomfort or displeasure, it is often quickly abandoned. But since this is our typical response to suffering the Christian life brings us many challenges why because the life of a Christian is filled with suffering we know in 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 12 we read indeed all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted not might be persecuted, will be persecuted. I mean, this occurs within our homes even. It occurs within our relationships. It occurs within our workplaces, within our schools, within our communities. The Bible is clear that Christians will endure suffering. Suffering is not always caused by others, however, Demonstrating our love for Christ by obedience and resisting temptation to sin, that also brings suffering. Not giving in to our fleshly desires, to give it all that it wants, is a form of suffering. You know that our flesh, I mean, you have flesh, you know this, it it, it craves to be pleased. It wants to be satisfied. It wants to feel good at any cost. It demands to be respected, to be honored, to be cherished. And to resist the hunger and thirst of a selfish pursuit is to endure constant suffering. So the Christian endures suffering both from those around us as well as from our sinful nature within us. And when we endure suffering, we are tempted to focus on the suffering rather than focusing on Christ. Beloved, this never ends in a good result. Never. And this is what was occurring in the lives of the Jewish believers to which the book of Hebrews was written. If you hold your place there in chapter 2 and just flip over to chapter 10, in Hebrews, we see what they had endured thus far. In Hebrews chapter 10, reading from verse 32, we read Hebrews 10, 32. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. So we see here that in the face of suffering, these Jewish believers were apparently tempted to return to Judaism, to renounce the claims of Christ. And as we'll see in our text this morning as we study it together, the humanity of Christ and his suffering, specifically his death on the cross, may have been understood or excuse me, may have been misunderstood by these believers. They could have begun asking the question, how could God be a man? And how could God die? And so for those of you note-takers, the title of this morning's sermon is The Son's Suffering. As we focus from this text that points us to the Son's Suffering, we'll be looking at these verses eight, uh, 10 through 18 this morning. And we see this topic of the son's suffering from beginning to end throughout this text. We see in the very beginning in verse 10, suffering is referred to. And in verse 18, suffering is referred to again. And right in the middle in verse 14, we see that the author references Jesus' suffering directly to his death upon a cross. Those of you that like language, we also see in this passage before us this morning that the author uses coordinating conjunctions four times and a subordinating conjunction once. So there's five conjunctions in our text. By the way, you say, well, I don't really care about those. Those are going to help us study God's word. We're going to use those this morning. Four times, the author uses the word for. We see in our English translation, F-O-R, and once he uses since. Since. He breaks down this argument for us so we can understand what he is arguing. And so, five conjunctions. You know what that means for us this morning? Woo, we're good. Five <laughs> points. You know what that means, right? Put down a seat cushion. <laughs> get get your stretch out. Get ready because five points. We're going to see in our text this morning the five points that... The author lays out for us, for the son's suffering for God's people. Those are, we're going to see, it's to bring, to bring us to glory, we'll see in verse 10. We'll see it's to create us into a new humanity in verses 11 through 13. We'll see thirdly, to deliver us from the fear of death in verses 14 and 15. Fourthly, to make propitiation for our sins, verses 16 and 17. And lastly, to help us in our suffering, or excuse me, just verse 18. And so with five points ahead of us, we must begin now. Point number one, to bring us to glory. Look back at Hebrews chapter 2, beginning in verse 10. We read, For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect, through suffering. All right, so here is that opening conjunction four, which shows that this section, the author is referring to what he had previously written back in Hebrews chapter two, verse nine. We studied that last week. Look back just one verse, Hebrews two, nine. We read, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. And as we saw last week, in his incarnation, by taking on flesh for a little while, Jesus was made lower than the angels. And as we'll see this morning, this was necessary to bring many sons to glory. It was by way of his suffering, his death on the cross, that Jesus is now the exalted one who is crowned with glory and honor. And his death, as we looked at last week, it was sufficient to accomplish a salvation for everyone, but efficient only for God's elect. And so based on all this is where we begin this morning. And the author of Hebrews picks up in verse 10 and says, For it was fitting. And he relates this to the son's suffering we see that it was appropriate for God to have his son suffer on the cross. The cross was God's plan. Augustine said this, he said, quote, the cross was a pulpit in which Christ preached his love to the world, end quote. What a great quote. God for whom... And by whom all things exist, planned to save his people through the suffering of his son, so that he might receive all honor, glory, and praise. The Apostle Paul described it this way in Romans chapter eleven and verse thirty-six: for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. What does this mean? It means that God is both the end and the means to the end. He is both the goal of history as well as the agent of history. And history is not man-centered. History is God-centered. For the praise of his glorious grace, he chooses to bring many sons to glory. This word in verse 10, sons, it's referring to all God's children, both male and female. So ladies, don't feel you're being left out here. It's referring to all God's people. And he says in verse 10 that he's bringing many sons to glory. Notice the word many here. Not every person will be saved. Only those God chose before the foundation of the world to receive salvation through Jesus Christ will be saved. And so the question that you might ask is, so how do I know if I'm included in that? Jesus said that his sheep hear his voice and they follow him. Following Him is not only trusting in his work, but it's also obeying his voice. Jesus said that all that the Father gives to him will come to him. And we know that faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. This means that it's not just agreeing with the facts about Jesus. It means believing the truth about Jesus. It means trusting him as Savior, not only as Savior, but also as Lord. You know what Lord means, right? Master. You follow and you obey and you do what he says. Both of these, trusting in him and following him, must be evidence in our lives for the assurance that we are His. You know, there's many people who want to escape the reality of the judgment of eternal damnation. And so they readily agree with the work of Christ, of what he did on the cross. But this alone is not evidence that they are a child of God. Jesus himself preached repentance and faith. It means turning from self and turning from sin. That is an additional evidence that someone is a child of God. In John's gospel, John chapter 3, handful of verses after the favorite verse, John 3.16. In, in verse 36, John 3.36, we read, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Belief and obedience. They need to be together. Jesus said that on judgment day, there will be many who stand before him and think that they are deserving of heaven. They'll give him a litany of excuses, of reasons, of this is why. And he will say to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And so if your life is marked by continual, habitual, willful sin. As we just read in John, the wrath of God remains upon you. And I would plead with you this morning to repent. To turn to Christ with your entire life in faith and obedience and to follow Jesus because it is obedience that is the mark of the believer. Those who are sons and daughters of God, they have been gifted with the Holy Spirit, which enables them to live a life that is pleasing in God's sight. We read in Romans chapter 8, verses 5 through 9 For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, we read in verse 9 of Romans chapter 8. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. This is God's Word. An evidence of His Spirit within us is the ability to obey Him. But all who have the Spirit... The Spirit of God are children of God. And all who are children of God live their lives for the glory of God. And why? Because as we turn our attention back to verse 10 in Hebrews chapter 2, we see that Christ suffered so that all God's children may live. That is the reason. That is the fuel. That that Jesus is the founder of salvation. The author here uses this word founder, and in Greek it contains the idea of supremacy, of personal participation, of originating. So Jesus is the originator. He is the leader, the captain, the champion, the pioneer of salvation. He is the one that has blazed the trail of salvation so that we can follow. And we see in verse 10, by which means Jesus brings us, to glory. Look at your Bibles once again, the end of verse 10. He was made perfect through suffering. Now, we must not misunderstand what is being spoken about here in Hebrews. Jesus, the eternal Son of God, has always existed in perfection. I mean, we already studied back in the opening chapter, chapter one, verse three, that he is the radiance of the glory of God, that he is the exact imprint of his nature. And so the question is, how do you make perfect more perfect? I mean, this has nothing, absolutely nothing to do with adding or removing anything from his moral nature. Jesus was absolutely sinless. Jesus, being made perfect through suffering, refers to him being made a perfect pioneer of salvation. Suffering here does not refer to pain in general. It speaks specifically of him suffering in his death upon the cross, which is a theme that is recurring throughout this book of Hebrews. We see it again in chapter 5, and in 9, and in 12. God uses death in bringing many sons to glory. The death of his son. We read in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. It is Christ's suffering through his atoning death on the cross that made him perfect as our atonement. Later on in Hebrews chapter 5, you can flip there if you like, a couple pages to the right. Hebrews chapter 5, in verses 8 and 9, we read, Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. it's Through Jesus' atoning work, his finished work on the cross, that God is bringing to glory all who trust and obey Christ. And it was the son's suffering that is necessary to bring us to glory. Let's continue in our text this morning, looking to the, the second point beyond bringing us to glory. The second point we see in this text is to create us into a new humanity. Again, in Hebrews chapter 2, Continuing in our text this morning, verses 11 through 13. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. You know, there are some who err in their thinking when they say that God is the father of all people. Well, in a general sense of him being the creator of all, this might be true in some fashion. God is not in a fatherly relationship with unrepentant, unregenerate sinners. They are rebels against God, and his wrath abides on them. We read in Romans 1, Verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Not all people have God as their Father, in the sense of them being saved and being in a relationship. Not all people are brought to glory, not all people are sanctified. God's family, beloved, is restricted to those who are consecrated and dedicated to God through the sanctifying work of Jesus, the Son. It's through his atoning death. We read in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 15 and 16. It says, So that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body, through the cross. Jesus has created in himself one new humanity. And as God's people, those who have been gifted with repentance and faith in Christ Jesus, we are children of God and members of the family of God. Consider the privilege to be in the family of God. And as children of God, we are brothers and sisters with the Son of God. Ponder that for a moment. Brothers and sisters with the Son of God. And you think, well, how is that so? Because both Jesus, the author of Hebrews says, both Jesus and those being sanctified by him, they have the same Father. We share the same human nature as Jesus, and he is not ashamed, we see here, to call us brothers, ladies, and sisters. He's not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. And in verse 12 and 13, the author of Hebrews quotes two Old Testament texts. He quotes Psalm 22, verse 22, and Isaiah chapter 8, verses 17 and 18, And he used them as his support for Christ's solidarity with believers. And both of these Old Testament passages convey overtones of righteous suffering. Verse 12, the author is quoting Psalm 22, verse 22. This verse comes from a portion of Scripture that the early church professed as containing significant prophecies of Christ's suffering we read this morning as our public reading, Psalm 22. And so that you know that it begins with anguish, words of anguish used by Jesus on the cross. As he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And later in the Psalm in verses seven and eight, we see the righteous one being mocked with such phrases as he trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him let him rescue him. And then in verses 16 through 18, they go on to speak very specifically about the piercing of his hands and his feet and the the wholesome of his bones and the dividing up of his garments through casting lots. You know, in that Psalm, Psalm 22, in the first 21 verses, they are a righteous man's plea for deliverance. But what is quoted in our text this morning is verse 22. And at verse 22, there is a transition in the psalm. It is now a declaration of trust. And there is joy and praise for God listening to his cry for help. And the remainder of that psalm, Psalm 22, praises the Lord for answering his prayer and for rescuing him from his enemies. I mean, just as David praised Yahweh in the congregation of the saints, so too Jesus praises the Lord with his brothers and sisters. This is what the author of Hebrews is making the point of. That this victory, it's not reserved for Jesus alone, but he shares it with his family members. And so the author's main point here in our text is that Jesus identifies fellow believers As my brothers or brothers and sisters. God has created a new family, a new humanity, a new redeemed people. And He's done that through the second Adam, Jesus. And so the author of Hebrews goes on to support this in verse 13 by quoting from Isaiah chapter 8, verses 17 and 18. He quotes in here and he says, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children of God has given me. By quoting Isaiah, he's doing it in reference to Jesus. He understands this prophecy to be expressing Jesus' trust towards the Father. Jesus is the one who has spoken of, of trusting in God. He trusted that God would rescue him and deliver him from his suffering, from his death Upon the cross, that God would not leave him there. The author then declares, Behold, I and the children God has given me. And this expresses again the familial relationship with all believers that Jesus has. And through his suffering, his death upon the cross, Jesus now has brothers and sisters in us, beloved. And as those who are saved by grace, through repentance and faith in the finished work of Christ, we are now the family of God. And I know we throw that term around very loosely, but consider it for a moment. It was through the son's suffering that we now share in this family. Thirdly, we see in our text this morning that the son's suffering is to deliver us from the fear of death. Continuing in our text in verses 14 and 15, we read, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. If you recall back in Hebrews chapter 1, We saw some of the clearest statements in the New Testament about the deity of Christ. And now, here in chapter two, we see some of the most profound verses in the New Testament on Christ's humanity. The author here speaks of flesh and blood, he's speaking of Christ's incarnation. We know John chapter 1 verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. He became flesh. Philippians 2, 6, and 7, we know this one as well, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. We also read in 1 Timothy chapter 3 verse 16 that he was manifested in the flesh vindicated by the spirit seen by angels proclaimed among the nations believed on in the world and taken up in glory Jesus and it's in his incarnation that he didn't lose sight of his divinity Rather, he became lower than the angels by taking on something that he did not have before. He becomes less by addition. What did he take on? He took on flesh. He became the God-man, fully God and fully man, what theologians refer to as the hypostatic union. I know I'm going to get a text message with Lin's song on that. So thank you for those that will send me that song. Jesus, he took into his own person, he took a nature that was like ours, and yet it was without sin. He did not stop being God. He was and ever will be equal with the Father. Yet he took on flesh so that he could suffer death on behalf of all God's elect. He had to become the second Adam to succeed where the first Adam failed. And so part of Christ's purpose for coming was to win back what was lost by Adam We read in Romans chapter 5, verses 12 and 15. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespasses, much more have the grace of God, and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, be abounded for many. Much better than the first Adam. But it's only this flesh and blood substitute that could actually pay for sin in full. Later in Hebrews, in, in chapter 10, verse 4, we read, It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. We know from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, And we read, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You know that in the history of redemption, there are three acts of imputation. The first one, Adam's sin was imputed, that is charged to every person since Adam. Secondly, our sin was imputed to Christ on the cross. And thirdly, Christ's righteousness by faith is imputed or credited to those who believe. Three acts of imputation in the history of redemption. And Christ had to be human for this imputation for sin to occur. Let's argue this. If if he was only divine, it would have been impossible for him to take on sin. Because as God, he is holy. Think about it. In, in his divinity, in his divinity, he could not have been made sin. So we think of his humanity. In his humanity, this previously sinless Jesus, the one who was perfect in his humanity, had our sin imputed to him by the Father. This was the Father's plan. He who knew no sin was made sin. And since the Father imputed our sin to Jesus, and the penalty of, of sin is death, Christ had to die for our sins. Read that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. It was his humanity that was subject to death. Since God is eternal and he's the self-existent one, he cannot die. Only God as a man could die. So we continue looking at chapter 2 and to verse 14. And the author of Hebrews goes on declaring the reasons why Jesus shared human nature. It says in verse 14 through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death that is the devil. And so we we see more precisely here why it's fitting for Jesus to be perfected through suffering. It is his death that destroys the work of the devil. It destroys the power of death that the devil has. Now it might appear strange to somebody, that the devil has his power of death. And I like what John Owen said about this. John Owen said, all of Satan's power over death was founded on sin. The obligation of the sinner to death gave Satan his power. If this obligation was removed, Satan's power would also be taken away, end quote. And so what we learn here in Hebrews chapter 2 verses 14 and 15 is that the death is only undone through death. Let's see? Yeah, let, let, let's walk that one through. Death dies only through the death of Jesus. Why the penalty for sin is death. And Jesus paid that penalty. Hallelujah. The devil's power of death is now dethroned and it's dethroned through the death of Jesus. And so, by suffering death himself, Jesus destroyed the devil's power over death. And this destruction of the devil's power delivers those who were captives. And so, like Moses in the Exodus, Jesus came to set his people free. As we see in verse 15, look again at verse 15, we see, and and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. It is Jesus who dismantled the power of the devil. He dismantled the tyrant who held mankind in slavery. It's through Christ's suffering that he overthrew Satan's dominion and set captive humanity free. God's people are no longer paralyzed. By the fear of death. Listen to what we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 54 through 57. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Beloved, what that means is that we no longer fear death. We no longer fear death because Christ has conquered death. He has gone before us. John Calvin said, quote, It is from this fear that Christ has released us by undergoing our curse and thus taking away what was fearful in death. Although we must still meet death, Let us nevertheless be calm and serene in living and dying when we have Christ going before us, end quote. It's this truth of why Paul could declare, for me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. To die is gain. There is no fear of death. Christ died on our behalf. It's through his suffering that we have been delivered from the fear of death. We have nothing more to fear. This leads us to his fourth reason that he puts in this passage for the son's suffering. The fourth one we see is to make propitiation for our sins. Look again Hebrews chapter 2 beginning at verse 16. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Verse 17. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Once again, if you've been with us through this study of Hebrews, you'll notice the author brings us back to the topic of angels. He's already argued that Jesus is superior to angels and that the world to come will not be ruled by angels. And referring back to the previous verses, he says that he is not referring to angels, but he's referring to the offspring of Abraham who are freed from the devil's power of death and their own fear of death. And so it's important for us to understand That the offspring of Abraham is not limited to Jewish believers, but it refers to all who put their trust in Jesus. In Galatians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul goes through arguing this and reasoning it out. And he says in verse 7, It is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And he says in the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Which means every believer, whether Jew or Gentile, is the offspring of Abraham. And it's those believers that the author of Hebrews says that Jesus helps them as high priest. And we see in, in verse 17, the author begins this theme of high priest. And it's a theme that dominates the rest of this book. High priest is mentioned 17 times in the book of Hebrews. In order to be high priest, one must be fully human. Jesus had to become fully human so that he could perform priestly service before God on man's behalf. What does that mean? It means that he was not partially human. He he was not mainly human. He was fully human. He was made, as the author of Hebrews writes here, he was made like his brothers in every respect, yet with no sin. So by taking on flesh, Jesus, the true high priest, offered his own life. He offered his own blood to secure a way for sinners to come to God. What that means is that Jesus is both the priest and the offering. He is both. He is our propitiation. His work on the cross fully satisfies God's wrath against us for our sin. It's his suffering, his his death on the cross that is in place of others. It's a vicarious death, a substitutionary atonement. And Isaiah prophesied about this. We read it earlier together, but in Isaiah chapter 53, I'll read just a few verses from there. Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 6, we read again, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, Jesus' propitiatory sacrifice is limited to his people, to the children given to him by God, to the offspring of Abraham. He is their high priest, the high priest that Hebrews goes on to explain in, in Hebrews chapter 9. You can flip there. We'll look at a couple passages in Hebrews. Go ahead and flip to chapter 9. Speaking of him as high priest, Hebrews chapter 9, looking in verse 12. Hebrews 9, 12, we read, He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Flip over chapter 10. Chapter 10, starting in verse 19. Hebrews 10, 19, we begin by reading, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed, with pure water. Beloved, it is Jesus that went forth as our priest and as our representative. And it's him who has offered his own precious blood, his perfect life, that makes propitiation for our sins. Lastly, in our text, we see that the son's suffering is to to help us in our suffering. Back to chapter 2, Hebrews chapter 2, our last verse in our text this morning. Hebrews 2, verse 18. We read, For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. You know, Jesus knows firsthand the anguish of the human existence, which means he is perfectly suited to help us in our suffering. You know, Jesus, he, he experienced the torments and the sorrows of the human experience. And so, no one can truly argue that God does not understand man's suffering, he most certainly does. The problem is not that Jesus is unable to sympathize and help those who are tempted. The problem is this, that those who are tempted often don't want help. Think about facing a difficult trial. You may know what God desires. You may know that he desires for you to glorify him to obey Christ but often there's the temptation to cave to our carnal desires rather than suffer for the glory of God we can do what makes us feel good or what makes us feel comfortable so rather than seeking the kingdom of God or seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness we could seek first our own kingdom and our own selfishness. Beloved, this is not the way of Christ. All those who are children of God will endure sufferings. They will suffer with Christ. Romans chapter 8, verse 17. We read, If children, then they're heirs, and if heirs of God, they are fellow heirs with Christ. Listen, there's contingency here. Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Christians will suffer. Genuine converted, regenerated, born again, use whatever term you want there, real Christians will suffer. Think about this. In denying ourselves and obeying Christ, we will endure suffering. But here's the great hope. Jesus stands at the ready to help those who are being tempted. We read in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, No temptation has overtaken you. That is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13. Jesus is able to keep his brothers and his sisters from stumbling. He knows far more about temptation than we do because he was tempted in every way and yet did not sin. We read in Hebrews chapter 4. You could turn over a page if you'd like to read it with me. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 15 and 16. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Beloved, we must not give in to temptation. Yes, it is painful to resist temptation, to say no to our selfish desires. But we read in Hebrews twelve four. you read, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. What is he saying? He's saying, Jesus did. And, and since Jesus did, he understands everything that you are going through understands and he hears you with a a sympathetic and a merciful heart when you call out to him in prayer when you lord help me help me to please you and not give in to this temptation he hears you and he answers you remember the problem is not that he cannot sympathize or he cannot help the problem is oftentimes we don't want the help but he's there to help. It's the son's sufferings that give him the best qualifications to help us with our sufferings. He most certainly will help. In bringing us to glory, we we see that the Son's suffering does all these things. It brings us to glory. It creates in us a new humanity, the family of God. It it delivers us from the fear of death and makes propitiation for our sins. And It also is in helping us in our sufferings. And, And knowing all of this, the Son's sufferings, when we think upon them, when we think upon His death, should strengthen our resolve to endure our suffering as we look to what Christ has endured on our behalf. He who was perfect and sinless would suffer for us. Yes, saying no to the flesh is painful, but Christ is there to help. If you're enduring through a difficult marriage, may you seek the Lord for strength and grace to continue to demonstrate Christ's faithfulness In your marriage. If you are single here and you're enduring temptation to be intimately involved with somebody or to disobey God and to be unequally yoked with another, may you seek the Lord for strength and for grace to obey Him at all costs. If you're tempted to complain and grumble about your work or your schoolwork, May you seek the Lord for strength to be content in all things. If you're being tempted to bear false witness, to get your own way, may you seek the Lord for grace and strength to obey Him. I mean, we can go on and on, and some of you are like, can you just wrap it up, land the plane, get me out of here. But we can go through the application of this one after another. But here's the point. The point is this. Christ has demonstrated his love for you through his suffering and now stands ready to help you in all of your sufferings. So, beloved, run to Jesus. Cry out to him he will sustain you and he will comfort you in your sufferings he sympathizes with you in your suffering i'll close with this word of encouragement from romans romans chapter 8 verse 18 the apostle paul writes for i consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us Cry out to Jesus. We thank you for your plan of salvation. We thank you for the obedience of your Son who suffered for us to die in our place. We thank you that we are now sons and daughters of yours, brothers and sisters with Christ. Oh God, grant us wisdom to abide in Christ to live for his glory and not for our own pleasure. Help us to run to him when faced with temptation, to ask him for help that we may suffer with him and not sin against him, that we demonstrate our love for him by obeying him. We know, Lord, that you answer prayers that are according to your will, and this prayer is what you desire for us. So we thank you, oh God, in advance for answering us. In Jesus' name we pray.